1: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month and 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile.com/switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month, unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month, face lower speeds, videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by
0: 53124 get 6 months of Paramount Plus Essential plan auto-renews after 6 months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
1: Hello everybody, this is Marshall Poe on the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them, so we thought we'd tell you that. Hello everyone, welcome back to New Books Network. Today, I feel very happy to invite Dr. Ji Li to join us to introduce her newest book, At the Frontier of God's Empire. So the first thing I want to do today is to invite Dr. Li to introduce herself to us.
0: Hi, Shu. Hi everyone. I'm Ji Li. I'm an Associate Professor of History at the University of Hong Kong. I'm a historian trained in three countries. China, the U.S., and France. My research focuses on social and religious history in late-imperial and modern China, especially the history of Christianity, women and gender, and the intricate relationship between religion, local society, and the making of modern China in a global context.
1: Thanks so much for your introduction. So for the next question, I'm wondering why you are interested in studying the histories of Manchuria and the missionary? <laughs>
0: That's a very interesting question. So we have to go back to my college years. Actually, I majored in French history when I was an undergraduate at Peking University, and I studied French as my second foreign language. When I applied for the PhD program in the U.S., I wanted to bring together my interest in French history and my background as a Chinese. So my original research proposal is a comparative study about women and gender and the revolution. In my first semester at Michigan, I guess that's very common for all our overseas Chinese students. uh, I participated in a workshop on the French Revolution, and then I met a senior scholar of French history. And she asked me the first question when she saw me, she said that I heard you want to study the French Revolution, Let me think about what topics in French Revolution that haven't been studied yet. So she was just joking, but I got the lesson that I need to think over my project carefully and realistically. So in the first two years at Michigan, I took a number of courses on European history and women and gender studies. Among the readings on European cultural history, I especially impressed by books such as The Religious* origins of the French Revolution. So for me, I'm the generation born and grew up after the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And I grew up in the early stage of China's opening up policy. The ideas about revolution I got from my teachers in China were quite conservative and limited. As I understood at that moment, the French Revolution or any other revolution is all about political action. It has nothing to do with religion. If it is, uh, it's associated with efforts to de-Christianize the state and its people. So therefore, you can imagine how excited I was when I read the book discussing the relation between religion and revolution. But at the moment, I also realized if I want to study France or any European countries or even more generally the Western civilization, we have to learn about Christianity. This is a key concept to understand the Western civilization. So I began my um, reading about Christianity and explore the French archives about China, especially the missionary archives. So this is how I get into the field. But why Manchuria? My first visit to French archives dates back to 2004. That's almost 20 years ago. Uh, I grew up in Chongqing, far from Manchuria. And at that time, I have no connection with Manchuria. Yeah. But I choose to work in a very particular missionary archives called the Mission Etangère. Uh, that's English as the Society of Foreign Missions of Paris uh, that we call it MEP. So this is a very particular French missionary society founded in the mid 17th century. And compared to Jesuits, Franciscans, those earlier missionary to late Imperial China. So MEP was a newcomer but it has played a very crucial role in China since the 19th century. So I choose to focus on Manchuria, northeastern part of China. First, because no one else worked with MEP Manchuria archives before me. So when I uh, look at the, my first day visiting there, I look at, they have eight different huge boxes of documents, but the archivist told me no one have ever worked with that, at least according to her records. And also at that time, several of my peer colleagues were also working on the MEP archives for their dissertations. One focusing on Sichuan and the other on Shanghai. I think okay, I should focus on different region. And also at Michigan, at that time, my supervisor in Chinese history is James Lee. James and his research team has have been working on northeastern part of China, Manchuria, for more than two decades. Although their work focuses on different topics like demography, economic history, local society, I think it would be nice for me to bring in religion to the teamwork. And I thought that I could use their established local connections for my future fieldwork in China. So it turned out to be my decision was very correct. So in the following years, when I did my field work in Manchuria, I indeed uh, get involved with the local connections established by my supervisor at that time. Okay,
1: thanks and so much. I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, yeah. so much. Of, that's from my personal uh, experience uh, in this field, entering the missionary studies and the study of Manchuria. But from that scholarly perspective, Manchuria was also very, very important. We have a number of uh, works focusing on this particular region, especially in the transition from late Imperial to modern China. We know that Japan, Russia, Korea, and all the international uh, actors, they became very active in Manchuria at the end of 19th century and early 20th century. And also in Chinese history, we know the mass migration, the the mass migration from other provinces to China intensified the region's political and social transformation. So. But all the previous studies of this region, they have already studied, paid attention to a number of international actors, such as diplomats, imperialists, businessmen, immigrants, but very few of them, or none of them almost, on focusing on missionaries. However, I discovered, according to my archive work and field work, I think missionaries have played a very, very critical role in this transition of China from the late period to modern period so and also oh, I've been working on MEP archives for many years and finally I discovered a body of a very remarkable personal archives of a particular MEP missionary working in Manchuria, almost 50 years So I think I can use these archives, and I want to join the scholarly exploration of Manchuria through an international missionary and grassroots perspective.
1: Thanks so much for your answers. I very enjoy your story of why you take interest in both the history of Manchuria and the missionary and the intersection of the two subjects. So So now let's turn to your book, sort of. Well, uh, for my first question for your books, uh, um I'm wondering about the historical landscape of Manchuria at the turn of 20th century, with the emphasis on the complicated relationship between people, land, religion, and the state.
0: Uh, thank you, Shu. Uh, Manchuria, as we all know, is very strategically located as the intersection of four major powers in Northeast Asia, China, Russia, Japan and Korea. And it has uh, different people living there, Chinese, Russians, Japanese, Koreans, and many ethnic, ethnical and indigenous populations. So, and if for for the, our audience who are familiar with uh, late Imperial China or Chinese history, we know that Manchus conquered China in 1644 and founded China's last Imperial dynasty, the Qing. But in the following 200 years, the Manchu rulers established a multi-ethnic and multicultural empire. However, at the homeland of the Manchus, from the 16th century onward, the Qing government enforced very strict but changing policies to prevent the migration of Han Chinese to Manchuria. So the restrictions lasted until the mid 19th century when the Qing began to loosen its prohibition on immigration to Manchuria because of all the challenges imposed by domestic crisis and expansion of Western imperialism. And also during this time, we can see the incoming of a number of international actors in 1858 a new Zhuang, today's near Inko, a small town uh, on the upper reaches of Liaohe, Liao River, uh, in Liaodong Peninsula, became the first treaty port open to the west uh, on China's uh, Manchuria and uh, Northeastern frontier following the Treaty of Tianjin. A few years later, the British Customs Office also established there. So in the meanwhile, we, we know that Russia's encroachment into Southern Manchuria clashed with Japan's growing design on Northeast Asia and caused a lot of trouble throughout the first half of the 20th century. So the very contested history of modern Manchuria provides a topic, a wonderful topic, to explore the interconnections of the modern world and the making of Eastern Asian modernity. Uh, this piece of history is well studied by many scholars We are familiar with like Pacincia Duara, Thomas DuPois, and many others. There is no doubt among this group of scholars that Manchuria is important and has been a significant place at the turn of the 20th century. So my new book adds a new angle and a new perspective to this scholarship by examining the relationship between people, land, and identity under the framework of mass migration and Christian missions why I focus on mass migration, even though I'm not a historian of demography, economic history, because the earliest or the Catholic immigrants, Catholic missionaries, they lived and working in China. Their stories is quite different from other parts of China. We know late Qing frontiers because they strictly uh, forbidden the immigration to Manchuria for a long time. But however, Since the 19th century, especially the early 19th century, we see the increasing number of immigrants, especially from uh, Hebei and Shandong province. And among these immigrants, uh, we have a large number of Catholics. Unfortunately, in our official registration, we don't have any records of the immigrants' religious background, but from my archive work and field work, and also from the local gazetteers. Actually, if you study the catholic villages in even surviving until today trace back their histories you can see that their background most of them are immigrants catholic immigrants from other parts of china so this brings in a very very important and interesting angle we know in the uh, long history the qin dynasty in manchuria so people's identities they are imposed by the state uh, basically, people um, are divided, categorized as bannermen, non-bannermen, and all these titles were linked to their relationship to land. For example, banner people, they work in the qi di, the banner lands, and non-banner people, a civilian civilian uh, they work but live in the Mindi. So how about religion? Religious ad- identity, uh, as I mentioned, is not part of the key category or focus of the official records, official uh, registration. But however, religion provide a new identity to these people immigrated to uh, Manchuria. And also um, this religious identity play a very important role because it is the Chinese Catholic immigrants who brought Christianity to Manchuria. They came there earlier than the systematic Catholic missions. The Roman Catholic missions in Manchuria was formally uh, established founded in 1840. So the, the large number of Catholic immigrants, they brought the religion, they brought Christianity and uh, to Manchuria. They gathered, they settled up, their settlement as an immigrant village and more and more Catholic families moving there. So we can see the history of the forming of local society Uh, from the perspective of Christianity, these Catholic families, immigrants brought in a new angle for us to think about the local society of Manchuria.
1: Thank you so much for your answer. For another question, I mean, after your introduction of it, temporal and geographic and the cultural background of your research, I want to invite you to talk about Cabrera's uh, private writing and his philosophy of personal documentation.
0: Thank you, Shu. Uh, Guggev, uh, who was a MEP missionary uh, in Paris, who came to China uh, at the end, at the turn of the 20th century, he was born into a Catholic merchant family in Shefbourg in the department of Manche in today's Northwestern part of France. And he was born in 1876. He joined MEP at the age of 18 and uh, dispatched to Manchuria in the early 1899. So that's at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, at that time, as a 23 year old young man, and also uh, from his Corin's perspective. He is an agent of the Catholic Church and the French Empire's expansion into China's frontier, and he didn't foresee that what is going to, what is waiting ahead of him. He would live through the most dramatic changes in modern Chinese history, as we all know, from the 1899 until 1948, when he died in China. So the discovery of his uh writings, uh, archives is also there is a very interesting story. I first discovered a section of 13 volumes of records, handwritten records about conversations written in French romanization. So it took me years to decipher what the conversation is about. It's not a standard Kapingin uh, we use. It's not French, but actually it turned out it's French romanization of a Chinese dialect used in a Catholic village in Manchuria. So by that moment, I discovered the set of uh, conversations back to 2008, but it took me many years uh, to figure out who was the author, and luckily I later on found some clues, and uh, I uh, it, com- it confirmed that all these records, conversations are written, collected, and recorded by Gokieff, so my, book based on these 13-volume records of village conversations as well as his over nearly 800 unpublished family letters written between uh 1893 uh, to 1940. So in, in which among these 800 family letters about 610 were from written from materia and in including 233 from a Catholic village where Gupiev has lived for 27 years. So that's the base for my story in my new book. And reading his private writings, basically the, the conversations and um, of the villagers and family letters, it's very a lot of details, vivid details, and almost when you read it, you can almost hear his people think um, coral talk laugh, cry, he recorded all these everyday life scenes. And also you can see the kids play church burn, missionary pray and villagers farm because he did not only write, he also drew. And he included in his family letters, uh, he included more than 100 illustrations depicting all these villagers, kids, men, women, and as well as the village scenes during some uh, chaotic times, such as the Boxer attack of the village church and the Japanese um, war and the Japanese-Russian war uh, during that time. So much of my book is based on these private writings, illustrations, and his records of daily life conversations. Also, I use the local archives, church records, more systematic church records, and the church required missionaries to send back yearly reports that not just um, includes long reports, uh, texts, but also like statistic uh, uh, statistic reports that includes all the numbers, data about how many people died, how many people uh, were born, and uh, they may participate in mass in Catholic rituals and all the extraordinary things happened in that village. So we have very grassroots uh, data for these insignificant uh uh, villages in chinese history but for the church records they can provide some of the very critical grassroots local data to or oh, because in chinese archives we don't have that detailed data of these villages of this group of people so i choose to write about a uh, and his village it's not Just because my archive research and field work led me to the exciting discovery one after another. Actually, my first book begins with a few letters written by three Chinese Catholic women to their French priest. These three women were from the exactly the same village that. Book Yeah work uh, uh, lived for 27 years. So this is actually a continuation of my archive exploration. And also when I began to uh, began my research for the first book, I studied this ordinary forgotten, <laughs> neglected in our official narratives, these ordinary Chinese uh, villages. And uh, from that moment on, I think this is what I want to do as a historian. I understand it is these ordinary, unknown people who actually made history and experienced the so called cross cultural encounters. We always talk about the cross cultural encounters, the cultural clashes, but besides these top intellectuals in need perspective, actually the large scale cross cultural encounters, uh, conflicts, negotiations, compromises happened in grassroots society among ordinary people. Those unknown Chinese, no name sometimes, uh, you don't have name for these Chinese Catholics, As and the ordinary missionaries like Guphev. So Guphev is a very minor figure. uh, For Matteo Ricci, for those prominent missionaries, they left a lot of stuff. But Gukye is one of the many modern missionaries. They're usually from a very ordinary family background, and they lived with uh, Chinese villagers. But however, they did not have long introduction, even in the church records. But however, I think these people, they are the ones who helped, witnessed, or experienced, also contributed to the transition of China from uh, native pure to a modern state. So I hope that the story in my new book will prompt some reconsiderations of the stereotype that shaped our interpretation of missionaries, imperialism, or Christianity in China. So I think this is a key point that we need to bring into the, the our story about China's transition to the modern period.
1: Okay, thank you so much for your answer. I want to say, when I read your book, I was impressed by the huge number of archival material in different languages and layer. I mean, diverse types and sources. So for the next question, I'm one, I want to invite you to talk about Kupiah, his early life. Kupiah
0: um, was born in provincial France. We know there is a two parts in France. One is Paris and the rest is not Paris. Paris. So he was a provincial Catholic child. Growing up at the end of 19th century, as I mentioned, he was born in 1876 into a Catholic family. And he was a seven of nine children in that family. His father was a, a iron monger, so a small merchant uh, in his town. And his mother was a native in that small town. So this is a very typical Catholic provincial family. I say ca- uh, typical because they were all good Catholics. The family keeps very good relationship with local priests and they go to a uh, pilgrimage to lots. Locke's uh, Louvre, that's one of the most important uh, Catholic sites in the uh, 19th century. So the family uh, went to pilgrimage to Locks every year and sending all their children to Catholic schools. So Gokie's desire to become a missionary and go abroad um, were very typical for many provincial French men and women during that time. When the Catholic missionary movements became French, or we say the missionary revival in France at that time, uh, we do not find very explicit mentions or explanations in Goupier's letters why he decided to become a missionary or he decided to go to China. But we can, from his family and his letters, we know that uh, his, one of his brothers, Joseph, became a missionary of MEP and spent 10 years working in Manchuria during that time. So yes formation also coincided with the transformation in French education marked by the shift from a secu- to a secular age and opposition of the Catholic Church to a liberal uh, government. By the 1880s, the French Republicans have started um, launched universal free and secular education in schools. But Couguiere, as a Catholic provincial child, uh, he still received a very traditional Catholic education at the end of the 19th century. Uh, however, a few decades uh, later, the Catholic schools were officially abolished in France in 1906. So Couguiere was the last generation uh, from of the French children who received very traditional um, Catholic education at that time. And he was very much likely uh, influenced by his older brother, Joseph, as I mentioned, and also his family and the local priests. And he really wanted to go abroad. At that time, in France, the people they organized in different uh, provinces, they organized some societies, soliciting donation from its residents to support French people to go abroad, especially the Far East, uh, to to do mission work there. So if we see from the church history, we can see during that time, the donation, the funding, uh, the most, more than half of those money are from France. So during that missionary revival background, uh, Goupier's choice is not very unique. It's just one of the a typical choice, life choices of his generation at the end of 19th
1: century France. Thank you so much for your answer. For the next question, I'm wondering about for major of Sun and Catholic community uh, and its a, its everyday life.
0: Uh, Santhais is insignificant in China. Right now, if you look at Uh, the Chinese map, or even a provincial map of Manchuria it's very hard to find Sun I still remember the first time I went to Sun was in 2007. As a time in Shenyang, the capital city, I had a a few friends, locals there who drove me to find Sun because we cannot find it on the local, even county maps. It's quite insignificant. From the perspective of Chinese politics, but however, this small village uh, is quite important in the map of Manchuria. Uh, Catholics. If you study the MEP map of Catholic Manchuria, Sentence has always been a very significant uh, place on the Manchuria on the Catholic Manchuria. So the village uh, was not very far from Shenyang the capital city about 74 kilometers south of Shenyang and it's on the west bank of Huanghe Huang River and this village is very much pretty much like other small villages a lot of other similar villages in Manchuria that's the china's northeast frontier so sometimes. Contains, still contains remains of a frontier fortress and defensive sidewalls, which were built during the mid ming dynasty. And the name Santa literally three strongholds refer to three of the seven uh, small hills, the earthworks. works. Uh, so that's the legacy from its frontier military background. But its territory, Sun without any clear demarcation, was associated with the neighboring counties in different historical periods. It remained very marginal to all those county seats until 1906, when the official administration order was imposed on the area in the late Qing government uh, creation of Liao Zhong County. So for a long time uh, in the early 20th century, San the village belongs to Liao Zhong County, but Liao Zhong County was founded uh, as late as 1906. So for a long time in history, San was on the borderland, on the borders of several far away from the neighboring city camps, and it's a very peripheral uh, community with little state presence. So missionaries, local priests, and Prominent Catholic villages like the Du family, I talked a lot in my book. Uh, they administered the daily life of Shantaiz. If you study the uh, local gazetteer, Shantaiz was originally called Du zhuang that means the village of the Du family. The Dus uh, they were Catholic immigrants from the village of Xidu in Lai That's used that's in today's Western Shandong, the household had it named Du Shoshan, who led the family move to oh, Liaoyang County in Eastern Liaoling Province. And he had two sons, one later moved to San Tai and the other to Sha introducing Christianity to the two places respectively. So over the ensuing decades, the two settlements developed into two significant Catholic communities in Western China. According to the first, a vicar apostolic, that's a first priest assigned to the Roman Catholic Manchuria mission. So when he visited Santa uh, back in the early uh, 1841, he reco- recorded about 170 Catholics living in that village. And from the missionary r- reports that year, Sainteiz was praised as a true Christian parish, like a delicious. Oasis in the desert of paganism. So we can find the comments on san uh, in, in the mid 19th century, and from in the following 100 years, from 1840s to 1949, Sainte's was under the supervision of the MEP over the course of the almost a century, about 20. French missionaries lived in the village, and all of them maintained a very good relationship with Chinese Catholic families, such as the Du family I mentioned, and the village church was originally built by a missionary in 1864, damaged twice, one during the Boxer uprising, and the the second time during the Chinese Cultural Revolution. In the 1960s, the current church in Santa is the village church. Was rebuilt in the 1982. So, when the opening up reform era uh, and the um, that also the freedom of religion was restored in according to the policy. So, a very planned style village church were rebuilt in 1980. So right now we can still see the church in the village if you visit there, and the community survived so many destructive anti-Christian movements in the late 19th and early 20th century, and it remains Catholic today. That's very impressive, but also this is one of many Catholic villages that remained uh, Catholic their faith over more than a century in Manchuria.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much for your answer about, I mean, your discussion about uh, Sun Tai and uh, its Catholic community. For the next question, I want to invite you to talk about the battlefield of the boasters' attack on Sun Tai's village and the church.
0: Uh, Sun is among many, many Catholic communities in Manchuria, which under the attack of boxers. A group here, here arrived in Sun in May 1900. So just during that time we know boxer uprising already started in the northern province of shandong and soon spread into manchuria so from uh, late july to august uh, the boxers besieged and fired at the santai's village church besieged for 21 days however the boxers encountered tireless resistance from the villagers led by two french missionaries of the village uh, one is an old French missionary named Father Guo or Father Gokhbel, and the other one is very young and new, or oh, Kammer Unfortunately uh, Fortunately for San uh, in mid-August, because the Russian army at the time approached the neighboring town, and the boxers and Chinese soldiers were ordered to retreat. So that's why the San Tai-Zi, after 21 days of mm, resistance, they survived. So all the villagers and uh, the community survived, and St. Isaac's church became one of the two to survive the Boxer Uprising in Manchuria. We know the Boxer Uprising, few events in Chinese history are better known in Western media than Boxer Uprising at the turn of 20th century, and we, we already have many accounts of the Boxer Uprising. Group here kept a uh, day-by-day day narrative record about what's going on about the attack of Santa's Village church. So his narrative is one of the rare witness accounts that allow us to look beyond the means to see the blood and feel the suffering of the moment on the grassroots. And what makes Guggyek's boxer uh, writing different from many other contemporary testimony is the most is that most similar story convey only the details of the event itself, depicting the slaughter as extraordinary incident. They tell us little about the individuals involved, especially the Chinese converts, and uh, they all remained silent about these individuals' lives because they don't know much about it. However, uh, and uh, under the pen of Gupier is different. Gokhuev's story about the battlefield is an integral part of his long-term writing narrative of the survival of Chinese Catholics over the four decades. So he recorded not only the events of the battlefield, but also the lives and the trajectories of these ordinary people involved over in the following decades. His account is very sympathetic, vivid, and enlightening. He writes, for example, about a baby boy who survived the Boxer's siege of Santais in his grandmother's arms. And many years later, when the child grew into a young man, uh, Guk Yeh was still there, so they had a conversation with this young man about his survival of boxer uprising. But however, the boy remembered nothing, but uh, uh, Guk Yeh shared a lot of details with the young boy and also elsewhere in a letter of Goupierre written in 1925 uh, after the village's 25th memorial ceremony for the resistance. Goupierre listened to an indigenous priest from Du family, the Father Du, who led a ceremony there to memorize the 25th anniversary of the Boxers attack, on village church, and Goupierre Uh, wrote in his letters, criticizing kind of shared doubts. He thinks that the local indigenous priest actually exaggerated the number of the deaths during the Boxer event, and also he exaggerated how bravery the Catholic villagers are during the attack. So all these accounts, we can see that his story about Boxer's attack on village church is not just a single unique event. It's in his long-term narrative of the local history of his recording. And also, oh, it's very interesting to say that uh, after the they survived the boxer uprising, um, uh, requested by MEP, the headquarters, Gukie wrote down a very, very long letter carefully describing the siege and documenting every each attack. And a counter blow by the Catholic villagers. He sent back the long letter to Paris and soon published. Uh, the letter was published. And if we compare that published version to Gukyev's own diary, uh, we can find some very interesting differences. The published ver- version emphasized some details not included in his own. Um, diary. Perhaps that's the purpose for the they want to attract more donation from the French public. So they the editors added some of the very fancy details about the battlefield. But uh Goupier kept his own record diary and fa- details in his family letters. So in my book, I used the his own private writing uh, diaries and family letters and to uh, reconstruct the battle scene during the boxers um attack and also I want to link the, that unique that very extraordinary attack and survival of the church to the long time story of the uh, survival of the village and uh, Catholic villagers because it not the the impact of the of the Boxer Uprising is long lasting until today. Very ironically, this is a very fitful attack to Christianity, to Chinese Catholics, but the Boxer Uprising marks a turning point followed by the expansion of Christianity in China and the dramatic growth of the conversion of baptism. Um, so, This is a very important turning point from the church perspective, and the Gupkei's records of the attack of the survival of the church left us a very rare long-term witness of how Chinese Catholic villages survived, not just Boxer uprising, but also the following disasters.
1: Thanks so much. So after you you talk about i would say the influence of the Box Uprising on the Sun tides, the next question I let's just like zoom out. I want to invite you talk about the development of a church system in local Montreal society and its implication for today's state church controversy.
0: As I already mentioned, the Catholic Montreal Mission was founded in 1840, and the Vatican entrusted it to the MEP. Uh, so the MEP supervised the development of mission work in Manchuria for a century until the 1949, as mentioned. Unlike other parts of China, most Catholic villages in Manchuria developed out of domestic immigrant settlements from Shandong and Hebei provinces. We can see the growth of Christianity in these local communities coincided with the formation of local society in the immigrant society of Manchuria. I summarized this in Manchuria. The historical process of making religion is also a process of making local society. So my study focuses on the identity formation of these communities during the century between the Catholic systematic um, mission was founded in 1940 as the end of the Japanese rule, so, and also the takeover of the Chinese communist government at the end of 1940s. So if you examine the dual process, uh, there are two processes here. One is to integrate Catholic immigrants, uh, settlements, villages into the global church system. This is one historical process during this time. The other process is integrating Catholic immigrant villages to the state structure. So these two process happened at the same time. And my research shows that these communities established a very strong Catholic identity during the integration into the state structure. And also they built up a strong identity, religious identity in such a short period because all these immigrants, they are homogeneous and developed a strong group cohesion during the transformation of Manchurian local society. So that's why they can survive many political storms even to the present day. So against this background, it's very important to study the local history of these Catholic villages because it provides a new perspective to previous scholarly studies on the formation of local society in Manchuria. And uh, for example, like Pasenja Duara, she, he argued that there are two very broad historical process of the transformation of local society in Manchuria. One is the economic changes stemming from the impact of the West and two is the extension of the state into rural society. And he also argued that uh, there is a cultural nexus of power in rural society. So when you study, when I study the local Catholic communities, we can see that religion played a role like the cultural nexus of power in these Catholic immigrant societies. So this is a perspective I think I can bring into the study of local society of Manchuria. And the development of Catholic communities in northeastern China is also during the very, very intense political transformation. And they showed us a very a significant but neglected story about religion and local societies because these Catholic immigrants occupied multiple structures. They are within the church structure, has a deep connection with European missionaries and global church system. On the other hand, if you study their history during the early 20th century, it's very interesting that their responses to the state a restructuring of local society is not very different from other non-christian non-catholic communities they are part of the local society that were included uh, integrated into the state structure during the early 20th century so these two process seemingly in contrast to each other, conflict with each other. But my story shows that actually the, the two process, they coexisted and co-developed. On the one hand, uh, the local uh, Catholic immigrant settlements were integrated into the, the state structure. On the other hand, they also maintained uh, their own networks with the global church system. That's very interesting. And also I think that's that gives us a lot of implications to understand the state and
1: church relations in today's china Thanks so much i really appreciate your answer to the question i i because i'm also a historian so i believe the history is just not about past we if you want to understand like for example contemporary chinese society or even the future of china we need to study the past like um, the church in manchuria in the at the turn of twentieth century, in your discussing in your book. So for the last question today, I want to invite you talk about the encounters between missionary and the bandits, and how marginal groups reacted and uh, were affected by the grand political change and the region of Catholicism.
0: Uh, Manchuria or northeastern China, Dongbei, is well known for its bandits, and this is actually bandits. It's not. Uh, my one of my topics when I designed this book. And however, um, when I began my reading of Gup writings, I got very surprised. I noticed that he has not just talking about bandits, there are among his more than 600 letters, uh, more than half. Over two to 300 letters, you can find his mention of bandits. So it's everywhere. This is such a significant topic, a group of people in his writing. So I think when I finally wrote my book, I think I cannot avoid it. So this is what happened in his daily life, a part of his daily life, and I should address it. And also from focusing on bandits, this is also what I call the ground level encounters. This is a key perspective in my book. So I avoided the diplomats, the elites, um, the top-down perspective so Gu here as I said he he was a very minor figure in church history and he lived with Chinese villagers throughout of his life and his encounters with bandits showed us a very different angle to understand the transformation of Manchuria's dramatic historical changes and the ordinary people's responses. So but when we talk about bandits we must be aware that the word bandits, or banditry uh, everywhere in Chinese history. And the Chinese language distinguishes a variety of different type of bandits. Um, in Chinese, we can find like also if related to Christianity, they are often labeled as uh, the religious bandits. And uh, in many places, um, and particular historical um, periods, it was essential bandits played an essential role in the local balance of power. The concept of banditry, as some scholars argued, represents the deliberate blurring of social realities in Chinese society, as the banditry is a category subsumed all kinds of crimes, ranging from petty saving to some social revolution. So the the boundaries between banditry, revolutionaries, and mass mobilization became even more blurred, during the early 20th century. And yeah, of course, he he did not, he cannot distinguish all the different types of banditry. He just used this term of bandits in his own writing. But he recorded very carefully the appearance, clothing, behavior, and even conversion of some of the bandits he encountered. In most cases, he made no judgments and simply categorized them all together, grouped together as bandits. And the bandits he described in his letters, uh, diaries included soldiers, robbers, murderers, Russians, Japanese, and sometimes revolutionaries during the Republican Revolution and also communist soldiers in later period. So some of them became bandits because of very immediate uh, material misfortunes uh, like thieves but others seemed to pursue an alternative better society like revolutionaries we we go as a foreign um, missionary he t- did not distinguish from this different group of peoples and group them together or as bandits but however he had a very expensive encounters with bandits of all these camps on many many occasions, he even has opportunity to develop more intimate familiarity with them when some of the bandits also sought redemption and salvation. And the relationship between Gopheyev and the bandits he met does not quite fit into the official narrative of modern Chinese history, which tends to depict the status of missionaries in two contradictory ways. On the one hand, the missionaries, they, in our uh, mainstream narrative, they were privileged and associated with the domestic political authority and privileges as agents of Western imperial expansion. Their work in Chinese society was protected by treaties, by privileges, by extraterritorial orality. But on the other hand, in grassroots accounts, we can see this group of missionaries were often portrayed as victims. In stories about banditry, missionaries were usually called yangpiao, or foreign tickets, because they were often get kidnapped by bandits. So reports about this kidnapping of foreigners are very, uh, everywhere in newspapers in the early 20th century. However, Gu, he he got never kidnapped by bandits, but he encountered them, he contacted them in many occasions. And his letters show a very clear trajectory of change of his understanding of banditry in Manchuria. In the first few years after his arrival, he often used the term bandits to describe late Qing government soldiers, especially these uh, Chinese soldiers when they uh, encountered Russians. And more strikingly, when Guk described real bandits, like those who robbed for a living or, and not affiliated with local governments, especially before 1911 revolution, he always mentioned the respect these bandits showed to missionaries and foreigners. His sympathy with these bandits is often too obvious to ignore. He once told his parents that his the story of uh, Father Guo, his colleague, had an adventure with bandits on his way to Santas by boat. Those bandits uh, not suspecting the presence of a missionary on board. They had board the boat to plunder everyone and everything. But when they discovering a foreign missionaries there, the bandits apologized to him and sought other praise. So this is, uh, when you read many stories like that, and it challenges your, your understanding about what's going on or the relationship between um, marginal people the, uh, like bandits in Chinese society and these foreign people. And from 1910s, the frequency of guest comments on banditry increased dramatically with the intensification of the Republican Revolution and it accumulated in the early 1930s before the founding of Japanese Manjoguo so um for the um uh for a uh, i think for him banditry played a very important role for him to contact and understand the local society of china because he usually lived in the castic villages and he had the daily life exchange But for the other groups of Chinese people, the banditry played an important role for him to understand what's going on. And for all these marginalized people, I think the central theme for them is to survival. So survival is a central theme. And they played with the foreign international actors, and they survived the revolution. And even though they don't understand much about the revolution, but uh, they um, they they worked. They survived the all the disasters experienced during this time.
1: Okay, thanks so much for your answer. So at the end of our talk today, I want to directly talk to our audience. So as a Chinese historian, I personally highly recommend all of our audience, our listeners, to consider buy a copy of Dr. Lee's fantastic book at the frontier of God's empire. So it's not only because I mentioned this book based on huge number, amazingly huge number archive of different language. Um, um, and more importantly, I would say the insights in the book about both local society in China and, uh, and the history of Christianity in China at the turn of the 10th century are very impressive, uh, amazing. So, no matter you are either interested in the history of Manchuria and uh, Northeast Asia, or you are interested in the history of nationality, or you may say, oh, I'm strongly interested in both the two topics. I highly recommend, as I say, buy a copy of this brilliant book and read it carefully. So at the end of our today, I want to repeat the title. Please remember the title of this fantastic book, um, Dr. G. Lee's book, at the frontier of the god's empire it's amazing good so thank you so much for listening to this podcast thank you thank you so much
0: Shu.